So will it be amplified? No. So it'll just be recorded. Okay, so you ready whenever I say? Okay, go for it. Well, we're in a series, uh, Making Sense of the Bible, a four-week series. We're in our third week, and we're looking at the key principles that help us understand when and how to apply Scripture. Uh, We've not spent so much time on how to interpret Scripture. We've really talked about how do we take a passage and decide whether and how to apply it today and change our practice because of it. Let me remind you of a couple of the general principles. One is we are using the Bible as our primary example. We're letting the Bible dictate how we do this, uh, both in its prescription and the examples that it gives us. We're also working to answer the question of how to apply Scripture in our present day, in our own cultural context. Now, remember, we've talked about this before. All Scripture is redemptive for someone, just not you directly. And we use the example out of Deuteronomy, the command where it says, um, do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. Uh, To this very day, we're still not sure what that means. Uh, The best theory I've heard is that it has something to do with uh, separating the Israelites from the Canaanite practices. That makes sense to me. But what I do know is that it's not something that we practice today. So what is the criteria that we use to apply a passage today? The first week, we looked at principle uh, number one, God's love for a broken world guides how and when we apply a passage today. We looked at Numbers 26 and 27, and we looked at what Jesus did with the Sabbath. You may remember he uh, was confronted because his disciples were uh, breaking the Sabbath, and he admitted it. He said, yes, you're right, but have you heard what David did when um, he was hungry? He went and ate the showbread, which was against the law. And then he goes one step further and says, "Uh, look at your own uh, priests. They break the Sabbath every Sabbath by working in the temple. In both cases, he held up a higher standard uh, to make sense of the commands and to say those commands don't really apply in the context. And really, it's the principle of love, the two love commands, love God and love people. When it came to uh, eating the, the food, David was hungry. And the Sabbath was made for our benefit, not the other way around. It doesn't hold us as a slave. And so David's Uh, David and his men, they went in and ate the showbread, and that was okay. That's the principle, higher higher principle of love, in this case expressed in hunger. Regarding the priest, imagine what would happen if the priests weren't in the temple every week working. Uh, People couldn't come worship and offer sacrifices. So there's a higher principle as well. So principle number one, God's love for a broken world guides how and when we apply a passage today. Last week, we looked at principle number two, Our interpretation and practice should always lead to redemption in our current world. We looked at Acts 11 and uh, Acts 15 and the problem of bringing the Gentiles into the church. So let me make sure you understand. Principle number one, does our interpretation lead to us bringing the love that God has for this broken world out to the world? Principle number two, do we do it in a way that is both healthy and redemptive? Let me give you a couple of Uh, possibilities, examples of how we might violate that. If our elders were to study the text on slavery, they might rightly, I believe, come to the conclusion that Paul taught redemptive principles on how to have slavery. 
never condemning it, making it possible. And so our elders could conclude we need to bring those principles back and put them in our church, bring slavery back. Now, if we did that, you would all laugh. Some of you would walk out crying, and you would think that's the most absurd thing in the world. That would not bring the love of Christ out to a broken world. It would be reversing us. On the second one, the second principle, do we bring it out in a healthy way, in a redemptive way? Our elders might look at the passages on the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, dressing modestly. And I think, again, appropriately, they would come to the conclusion those principles were all addressed to, uh, to the church back then uh, as examples of what it means to put each other first. Well, if our elders came to the conclusion that we should bring those practices back, that would not bring a good principle back in a healthy way. It would not be redemptive for culture. Now, let me be quick to say that many of these passages um, can be in, uh, applied in different ways around the world. For example, when I teach overseas in an Asian context, uh, especially in a Hindu country, depending on where I am, they can tell which caste they're part of, where in the caste they belong by the jewelry that they're wearing. So I've actually been in the classroom with women students where some of them are wearing gold jewelry and some of them are not. And they know that uh, they belong to different castes based on that. And so this is actually an example what we use of what it means to bring unity within their context. And so, uh, but that's not a problem that we deal with in our culture. Jewelry doesn't give us that kind of significance here. And so there's no longer redemptive within our world. In Acts 11 and Acts 15, <clears throat> when the uh, Jerusalem church was trying to figure out what to do with the apostles, uh, uh, the apostles and the leaders are trying to figure out what to do with the, the Gentile converts. What was it about them that they were able to take 613 commands and reduce it down to four? By the way, only one of which survived. The only one that survived was the one dealing with sexual immorality. One of the ones they put in there, for example, was not eating meat offered to idols. And yet Paul turns right around and he does that. We'll come back to that one and talk about it in just a minute. So remember, what we're attempting to do here is figure out how to take our interpretation and bring it into our world today so that the gospel is attractive and, our, and this broken world that we live in comes to know the true living God and his love for them. Culture is critical in understanding how God is a loving God and how he brings that out to a broken world. We will never let culture dictate for us truth. We will always go to the word of God for truth. But culture is the catalyst by which questions are raised, ideas are presented. Sometimes they give us great ideas. We'll look at some point about childhood discipline. The world has uh, given us a much better model for how to discipline our children than we find in the scriptures. Uh, but other things that they bring to us are not, not valid. And so we have to make the determination, and culture is a catalyst that brings these questions to the table. But we'll always look to the Word of God for our, uh, for as a core, as a central point for determining truth. So now let's move to principle number three today, and here's the question. Is our interpretation consistent with the freedoms established by the Bible itself? Now when you look in the Scriptures, there appears to be uh, what some scholars call a doubleness, I look at it as a variation, if you will. Some passages, they allow for different options. In other words, the Bible allows for variation and sometimes creates tension in the commands. 
An example of that would be uh, Paul himself. He encourages the young widows to remain unmarried in Greece, 1 Corinthians 7. But in Ephesus, uh, and written in 1 Timothy, he encourages them to remarry, 1 Timothy 5. So there's an example where we have two different approaches in two different cultural contexts. The Bible gives us variation, and therefore I am proposing that we have freedom uh, in this area. Uh, another example that we just mentioned, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 asked the Gentiles not to eat meat offered to idols, and yet Paul made allowances for this practice in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 8. So this is an area that we have freedom. But once again, we have to take into account the cultural context in which we're in. When I was in seminary, uh, one of the students asked the professor, or the professor made the comment that uh, the meat uh, offering of meat to idols is no longer a relevant practice in our culture. And one of the young female students from Asia raised her hands and she said, well, it is in my culture because we still offer meat offered to idols and we still eat it. It's like, wow, okay, here's an example of where one part of the world, the redemptive principles of Scripture still apply, but in ours, they do not. So how do we ground this principle in God's Word? How do we make sense of it? Uh, if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to read a passage, and we're going to take a look at it. This is what I call a controlling passage, 1 Corinthians 9. A controlling passage is a passage that makes sense of all the other passages. It helps you to understand it, and this is one of them, 1 Corinthians 9. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul had just been talking about food sacrificed idols. He moves on from there, his rights as an apostle, and what he could have done but chose not to. And then he tells us why in verse 19 of chapter 9. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. There it is. There's the principle. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And then he explains it. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, Though I am not free from God's law, that I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. So this is the principle that Paul used, I believe, to dictate how to live out his faith. And this is a guiding principle for us. Where the Bible gives us variation, we have freedom. Where the Bible doesn't, we don't. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But let's be honest first. The Bible offers very complicated wisdom on a variety of matters. For example, in Matthew 5, what was once allowed in the Old Testament is now condemned. Divorce by a dissatisfied husband. The satisfied husband can't just write a certificate of divorce. It just doesn't work that way. Another example, what was once commanded is now done away with is obsolete. Hebrews 8 uses this principle when talking about the Old Testament sacrifices. Christ is now our sacrifice, our eternal sacrifice, so the sacrificial system is obsolete. Another example, what is mandated for some is not mandated for others. 
That's what we saw in Acts 15, adherence to the Jewish law by Gentiles. So when Paul was with the Jews, he lived out the law. When he was with the Gentiles, he did. He lived his life differently. Uh, another example, what is troubling to some is actually of no consequence to others. That's Acts 15 and Romans 8, the whole question of eating meat offered to idols. It's simply of no consequence because we know that there really are no other gods. But it does involve the conscience of some of the people that haven't quite gotten that yet. So the Bible's teaching is often complex, subtle, uh, and even ambiguous for all of us. It doesn't matter how much education we have. There are complicated texts. So this suggests a pattern that I follow. When the Bible is clear and consistent, we should be as well. When the Bible is clear and consistent, we should be as well. An example of that is adultery. In fact, all the sexual sins fall into this category. But let's look at adultery just for a second. As the Bible unfolds uh, and more and more information is given, adultery is always called sin. There's no deviation from that. It's not like it's okay in the uh, uh, Asia Minor, but it's not okay in Greece. It's always called sin. What actually changes is it's clarified as you move through the Scripture. So in the Old Testament, a man pretty much could sleep with any other woman except another man's wife. So if it's a servant, a prostitute, a virgin, but the woman was limited only to her husband. Christ overturned that and said, no, adultery is, is the same for both. Anytime a man sleeps with a man, uh, a woman other than his wife, and anytime a woman sleeps with a man other than her husband, that's adultery. And it's always wrong. So the Bible is clear and consistent. Therefore, we, had, we should be as well. This is the line that we hold to regardless of what culture says. It may be offensive to culture. I get that. But that is the line. When the Bible draws a line in the sand, we will hold to that line. But when the Bible makes allowances, we have freedom. Eating of meat offered idols, the treatment of widows, that sort of thing. So we have freedom there, but it's not the freedom to do whatever we want. We can't just develop a practice and live it out because we like it. It makes us happy. We still have guidelines. We still have to operate within bounds. What are those boundaries? I would suggest when we come across an idea that gives us freedom, an example in Scripture, then we go back to principles number one and number two. Does it result in bringing the love of Christ out to a broken world, and does it do it in a healthy and redemptive way? Or as Paul says, I become all things to all people, that I might win some for Christ and win some to Christ. So what are we to make of the passages that imply this variation regarding women? Well, let me say this before I jump into this. You know, I have really good friends who are smarter than I am, better educated, on one side of this divide that says that women should not be elders, women should not be leaders. And then on the other side over here, I have very good friends, smarter and more educated than I am, who say just the opposite. We need to make women leaders and that sort of thing. And, and they both have very good arguments. I read their arguments and I understand what they're saying and I understand why they're saying it. And so what do we do when that happens? Well, it's important to understand that the overall cultural attitude of the ancient world was one of strong patriarchy. Uh, you can't get away from that. It's very clear. Now, I've looked at these passages for 20 years now. I've read books, articles, had numerous conversations. I've meditated, prayed, studied them. I've looked at them in depth. 
and gone back and forth, my basic sense is that God is not pleased with patriarchy. I just don't think he is. The Bible begins without it, and the eternal state ends without it. Galatians 3.28, in Christ, uh, there is neither slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, uh, male or female. So we end our time in glory without patriarchy just as we began it. So my sense is that God is not pleased with patriarchy. But as is consistent throughout the whole Bible, he seems to be accommodating and redeeming the ancient world in order to accomplish his mission in the world, that is, reaching the nations. Now remember, my basic hermeneutical principle, I start with wherever I am in the Bible, is this. When God acts or speaks into our world, he does so for the purpose of redeeming. He's going to take something that's broken, and he's going to repair it. If we could, and we can't, but if we could understand the background to every passage, we would see that it was redemptive for the faithful, those who were there at the time. We will use many examples over the years uh, up front here to illustrate that. But if you start with that premise, that God is always redemptive, then many of these Old Testament passages begin to make sense. Uh, the passages surrounding rape, genocide, treatment of animals, all of those things, they make sense if you could figure out the cultural context. So what God is doing is that he's accommodating the brokenness that he's trying to redeem. The very thing you do with teenagers, by the way. You have to accommodate some of their sinfulness in order for them to learn and grow, and God does the same thing. So get, let me give you some examples of this variance that I see, especially as it relates to the role of women. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 7 to 12. By the way, we're not going to read all these. A couple of them we will. Uh, so just follow along with me for a moment. 1 Corinthians 11, 7 to 12. Paul says that women are the glory of men, and men are the glory and image of God. Well, that seems to imply at some level that women are, women are uh, uh, in some way inferior the problem is that flies right in the face of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where it says we're both made in the image of God. And Paul knew that. And furthermore, at the end of the paragraph, Paul goes on to say women are not independent of men and men are not independent of women. And now, I'm not going to try to untangle that for you. <laughs> not here. Uh, that's another conversation for another day. I just want to highlight some of the confusion that begins to surface within the context of one paragraph. Um, <clears throat> variety of opinions on what Paul is doing here in this passage. Or 1 Corinthians 14, women are to be silent in the church. They're not even allowed to speak. They're supposed to ask their husbands at home, and yet three chapters earlier in chapter 11, he says that if a woman prays or prophesies in church, she should wear a symbol of authority on her head. Well, praying and prophesying are public speaking in the worship setting. So what does he mean when he says they're not even allowed to speak, but then they can? And in between those two, chapters 11 and 14, you have 12, 13, and 14, and the whole concept of spiritual gifts, where the Spirit distributes gifts as He desires to each of you, men and women, without regard to gender. There's no mention of gender in any of those passages. Wow. What do we do with this? How do we make sense of it? Or 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13 and 14. I'm going to turn there because that is such a controversial passage. If you want to uh, read it, you don't have to. You've all heard it. Verse 13 and 14, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. 
when I sat for my uh, PhD comprehensive exams, that's one of the questions. They said, what's your interpretation of that? And I said, I have no idea. And they all laughed and said, you pass. <laughs> so, so this is one of those places where the church is just really not sure what to do about it. The interpretations abound. He says, clearly, the woman became a sinner in the garden, and yet in Romans 5.12, he makes it clear that sin entered the world through the man. So why is he picking on the woman here? Several good theories. I'm not going to try to solve it for you today. Additionally, it seems to imply that the woman is more prone to spiritual deception than the man, and yet this interpretation seems preposterous coming from a man with such obvious regard for women. If you just simply look in Romans 16, he highlights Phoebe, a deaconess, and Priscilla, a teacher, and numerous other wise women. He mentions Junia, a woman apostle, and mentions nothing about limitations of women. So in one passage, he seems to be limiting them. In another passage, he doesn't. Two different cultural contexts. Or 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, the verses right before that. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So Paul is placing some restrictions on women, and yet Ephesians 4 seems to say something different. So turn with me to Ephesians 4. This is another one of those, uh, for me, a controlling passage. It's a passage that explains all of the other passages. So we're going to read this together, and I want you to listen to the beauty of what Paul is saying here. Uh, it kind of offsets what he says, it appears to anyway, in 1 Timothy. So in Ephesians 4, he had just got done talking about uh, in chapter 2 that because of the death of Christ, these two estranged groups of Jews and Gentiles had been brought together into one unified body, the body of Christ. And now he's talking all through the book on how to protect that. So he says, be uh, in, at the beginning of chapter 4, for example, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So then when he's in the middle of this passage, in verse 7 of chapter 4, but each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He's the one that made this decision. This is why it says when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Verse 11, here are those gifts. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And that's not only just built up in numbers. That includes that. It, it talks about the way we grow in our understanding and the way we mature, and therefore the way we bring this broken world out these windows here to us, to Christ. So he gave the gifts for this expressed purpose. So in First Timothy, he seems to be placing some restrictions on women, and yet in Ephesians 4, he allows for women to have all the gifts. So Romans 16, 7, Junia was a woman apostle. Acts 21, 9, Philip's four daughters were prophets. Acts 18, Philip Priscilla was a teacher who taught Apollos. Even Peter at, at the Pentecost in Acts 2 prophesies from Joel that under the new covenant, our sons and our daughters would prophesy and dream dreams. Now, what I want to do here is be fair. As I said, I have such good friends on both sides of this argument. Some over here that argue that women have a certain limitation placed on them, and others over on this side that argue that women don't. Let's be fair. And let's take into account all that Paul said. That's our task. Take everything into account um, that he said regarding women. Some of it seems to appear to be egalitarian, and others appears to be hierarchical. 
<clears throat> so that raises a question many of you have asked. Do we take the most conservative passage to guide our thinking? Well, the moment we classify a passage as conservative, we're automatically qualifying another passage as liberal. And so I would argue the fact that sometimes Paul uses, if you want to use that language, conservative approaches, and other times he uses liberal uh, approaches. The fact that he does both means that we have freedom. So I would suggest that we do not always have to take the most conservative interpretation. Otherwise, we would bring back practices that most of us think are absurd today. So when we have freedom, we should go back to principles number one and number two. Freedom doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. Peter and Paul both argued not to use our freedom for our own advantage, but to use it for the sake of bringing Christ to this broken world. Principle number one, does our interpretation and therefore our practice result in bringing Christ to a broken world? Principle number two, does it do so in such a way that it's redemptive and healthy? Sometimes we should be conservative and sometimes we have freedom. I was in India a number of years ago teaching a class, and I had the women on one side and the men on the other side, and I used the passage in Deuteronomy 22 about what happens if you rape a virgin, what you're supposed to do to restore her honor, marry her. And I used it as an example, and uh, the students had a puzzled look on their face. Now, I remember the men are sitting on one side and the women on the other side, and I could see the puzzled look. And so I paused and I said, is there any situation in your culture in which you would ask the women who's been raped to marry the man who raped her. There's none in our culture. So I made the assumption, the good old American assumption, that uh, that would be the same in their culture. So they all talked among themselves. Finally, one of the males stood up, showing respect as he did. Please, sir, we do not understand the question. And I said, all right. When a woman in your culture is raped, is she expected to marry the man who raped her? And the students all looked at me like I was born on another planet. And he said, well, who else is going to marry her? Whoa. I just stepped across a huge cultural chasm I did not know was there. And, uh, and I realized in this particular cultural setting, these principles in the Old Testament still apply. They bring a sense of redemption, perhaps. In our culture, we have moved beyond that. Well, um, when the, when the scriptures are not clear, we have freedom. Let me just say as a postscript, even the marriage text in Ephesians 5 demonstrates both of these principles at work. Paul begins in verse 21, submit yourselves to one another. Now, when you put that in the cultural context in which it was written, you're going to see that what Paul is doing is pushing a new way of thinking about marriage. Now, we're reading it from the 21st century looking back, and it seems very archaic to us, but but pause just for a moment with me and think about how they would have received that. You see, back then, the standard language in the household codes was that the wife would obey the husband. By the way, that's the language Paul uses with children and slaves. They would obey the husband because the husband had authority over them. All right, the use of the word obey carries some level of legality to it. When you are when you are expected to obey, it's because of your formal relationship. So uh, an enlisted person in the military is expected to obey an officer, that sort of thing. So when Paul shifted that word group over to the word submit, and he brings in the concept of mutual submission, the very use of that word implies equality because you submit voluntarily to appear. 
it's an amazing thing. Why did he use that? I think he's using it because this is a model he got from the Trinity. When he made sense of the Trinity, he could see that the members of the Trinity submit to one another, um, and they do it willingly. That's what a husband and wife does, submit to one another. Now, it's, there's nothing wrong with a wife submitting to a husband. What a beautiful picture. There's nothing wrong with a husband sacrificing for a wife. Look at the world around us in our own culture today. Marriages are failing at an astounding rate. They don't understand. I'm with people all week long, and they don't understand this concept of putting one another first. Philippians chapter 2. And so this idea of submitting to one another is just another way of stating what we as Christians hold to be true and which distinguish us from the world. All this, uh, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Is That's a beautiful picture. There's no other way to, to say it. The older cultural practice of obedience and ownership is now being replaced by a newer marriage relationship of love, respect, sacrifice. But pause, what's our first principle? Is the love of Christ being brought out to a broken world? If you back up in Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 16, which immediately precede the marriage text, he says, we are children of light. We should live as children of light. Light to whom? To a dark world. It's to a dark world. And so he is asking us to live as children of light, to reflect what we know to be true about this one true living God. We are asked to promote this in the world by our marriages. We should love one another and put each other first. So wives, there's nothing wrong with uh, submitting to your husbands. What a great picture. Husbands, there's nothing wrong with sacrificing for your wives. What your, your friends and neighbors will look at you and they'll say, man, oh man, I wish I had that. And Paul is playing off of one of the most wonderful paradoxes in the Bible. The one who is both the Lord and the servant of the church becomes the model by which we do that. All right. So let me refresh. Uh, let me uh, remind us of what we're doing here as we conclude. Principle number one, when we decide when and how to bring a command forward into our culture today and develop a practice from that. Number one, does it bring the love of God for this broken world out to the broken world? Principle number two, does it do it in such a way that is healthy and redemptive to the culture and the people that receive it? Principle number three helps us establish the guidelines of how to do that. Where the Bible is clear and consistent, we will draw that line in the sand and we'll be clear and consistent. Where the Bible gives us variation, variance, tension, that means we have freedom. We should jump up and down and celebrate. We can't do what we want. We have freedom within bounds. And what are those boundaries? Principles number one and two. We go back to the impact it has. That's the third principle. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for uh, not just wiping us out and, uh, and just making an end of the mess. Thank you for tolerating our own sin, our own brokenness, and being so patient with us and so kind and so uh, generous in the way you, you move about. Because not only do we experience your grace, but we also have a model of what it means to be gracious to the people around us. Help us as a church to continue to uh, be mindful of our own county with all the brokenness here. And uh, to be mindful of how to bring your son out in a way that is healthy and redemptive. 
while at the same time enjoying the freedom that you give us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.